Why, hello and welcome. Welcome to the Peer Pressure Podcast. I am Diane, sometimes known as Diane Kamikaze, and I am your host. The reason why I do this podcast is because I like to say I am a champion of heavy music. I've always found my favorite songs since I was a young kid had riffs, hooks, were either metal, hardcore, hard rock, or punk, or something fairly aggressive in attitude and sound. And I am all about appreciating the people that keep that world going, whether they're musicians, webmasters, other podcasters, record label and festival owners. It's important to me to recognize what these people do in that realm of music. So... I am here to bring them to you in a different context, more than a Wikipedia entry or a press release, a little more personal and a lot more fun. I'm a rocker for life, and I hope these episodes do make a difference. Send me feedback at diane at wfmu.org. And my Facebook page is Diane Kamikaze Farris, rocker for life. Like my page there, and I will keep everybody updated on podcast episodes in that space. Thanks so much for listening and stay tuned. Today's podcast is a conversation with Tony Levin, best known as the bass player, Chapman stick player in King Crimson, and also very, very much attached to uh, Peter Gabriel as well. I spoke to him on June 12th, 2017. And the original airing of this interview was June 15th, 2017. Let's hear what Tony has to say. Tony Levin on Peer Pressure. Stay tuned. My guest is Tony Levin. And uh, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And I would love to give people a hint about what the King Crimson show will be like. Yes. We're thrilled to be coming to New Jersey. You did just have your first night. So how, how do we say, how is the tour going? Uh, you can say that, but really the first night is tonight. What we uh, always do, uh, King Crimson rehearses endlessly because we really like our, our each, each year's tour to be very special. So uh, we rehearse uh, on and off uh, and then up to the first show, we rehearse in the, in the city we're going to be in, which is Seattle in this case. And then we usually start with what we call a friends and family show. You could call it a dress rehearsal oh, or a okay. full dress run-through. Mm-hmm. But, uh, uh, yeah, through the years, we've assembled so many friends in, in each city that uh, I think last night there were 600 people at the friends and family run-through. And uh, it also went quite long. I think we did a, a show that was three hours and 15 minutes last night. Uh, but it wasn't the real show. The real show will be tonight. I don't know how long it'll be or uh, whether it probably will be a different set list. Robert Fripp, our leader, makes up a different set list for each night. We only see that in the afternoon. Wow. Uh, so tonight, so yes, I, I, the first show went great, but uh, really the first show will be tonight, and I hope it goes great. Oh, yeah. That's crazy. I mean, you know. It is. There, As usual, <laughs> with, with King Crimson, often there aren't the normal answers to any question. We have our own way of doing things, and, and fortunately, our audience uh, and the fans of the band kind of expect that, and they understand that, and they understand they're going to be surprised to, to some degree. Well, and that would be, I mean, King Crimson obviously falls into the, quote, progressive category. That's yes. the most progressive thing you could do is to change things and to, and to uh, 
to keep people guessing and to keep yourselves guessing. That's where I'm really impressed. I, I completely agree. You, 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 you put it a little better than I can. I often try to express that, uh, that that's what, well, as you said, that's what I like about progressive music, that it really be progressive, and I'm very lucky to have uh, landed myself in a band which really does progress. We don't do things, even the way we did it last year, this is similar to last year's show, mm-hmm. but quite different in a few ways, and, and as you mentioned, each of us is, in addition to the band pushing itself to go into new, somewhat new boundaries, each of us pushes ourselves as players, I know I certainly do, so during these rehearsals we do through the year, uh, I'm working on different techniques and kind of subtly changing what I do just to try to not not settle for what I did last year and try and become a better player. And so what instruments are you playing on this tour? I play bass. I'm the bass player in the band, and, mm-hmm. and I have a few basses, and I also play the Chapman stick, a very unusual string instrument that has bass strings and guitar strings. I mostly play the bass strings in this context in King Crimson. Mm-hmm. In my band Stickman, I play the, the, the bass strings and the guitar strings. It's got a, a 12 strings, so there's a lot of notes there. And some of the King Crimson repertoire that we do from earlier years uh, really suits the, the Chapman stick very well. In fact, mm. I couldn't play it on the bass. So it's very useful for that. I also play the upright, the NS electric upright, on some pieces, especially uh, if King Crimson does some improv- improvising. And on an improv, I like having the option of moving over the upright. Mm-hmm. And also uh, some of the very the, the 60s classic King Crimson material uh, some of it just sounds really good on upright, so I plan on that. Nice. Does um, <clears throat> I know that you said that Robert gives you the set every day. Sometimes is song sequencing difficult? Sometimes if you're playing fretless on one song and then you're playing switching to stick on another, have you have you been cursing very, him under your breath? That, <laughs> like I can't believe. Yeah, that. that's a very astute question. You must be a musician that you think that way, and it is it is true. It can be very awkward uh, because especially because we, we somewhat segue the shows. It's a long show, a lot of music, and we, do, we don't want to waste time. So we go from one piece. The drummers usually count off or, or indicate the start of a piece. Mm-hmm. And I often have to tell them before the show, hey, don't start this piece because I'm going to be reaching for another instrument. And uh, indeed, that happened last night. Then we started a piece, and I was still scuffling, and, and I came in just a second late for the first note. So you're right, that does happen, and, and uh, if I were putting the set list together, I would do it with that in mind, but, but Robert has a very good sense of the set, and, and in, a, in a way, it's one of those challenges, you know, you, 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 uh, you take the challenges in King Crimson as they come, and one of them for me is changing instruments. Hmm. And, and by the way, since I mentioned drummers, I should point out that King Crimson now has three drummers. Yes, my next question, right there. <laughs> yeah, one of the unusual <laughs> things, that, probably the most unusual thing people confront when they come to the audience is the entire front row of the the stage is drummers spread out left to right and and um, you know on a riser behind them are the other five of us and uh, the drum show alone is sort of like a like a wonder wondrous circus act they do amazing things uh the the, the rhythms are complex to begin with in king crimson but the drummers have found wonderful uh They've worked really hard over the years and found different techniques and, and uh, different approaches for dividing up the drums. It, it's not at all like like two or three guys pounding out the same part. Never like that. In fact, within one piece, they'll have two or three different strategies. And, and you can see all of that from the audience. A drum fill might might go across the stage from left to right with all of those tom-toms. Oh, or it cool. might, uh, you might hear the, the part divided among the 
the three guys in different ways that changes with different sections of the piece. And for me as a bass player, of course, it's pretty crucial and pretty interesting because I'm usually playing somewhat with the drummer or the yes. drummers. And uh, fortunately, I have uh, my own monitor next to me, uh, in-ear monitors, and I have uh, you know I can do my own mix. So within each piece, I'll I'll quickly reach out and turn one guy up or down depending on who's got the main bass drum part that I want to lock in with. Oh wow, that's crazy. That's uh, and did you did you have to sort of rethink your approach to bass parts considering you've got three drummers there? Yes, boy, I love your questions. Uh, uh, rethink, yes, but I don't really think about. Uh, what I'm going to play in in the kind of intellectual way, I I had to confront that. I, I when when Robert first had the idea about, hey, let's have three drummers. I thought, okay, I took a deep breath. <coughs> Excuse me, <laughs> I don't want to take a deep breath now. Yes. And I thought, well, that's going to be a challenge. And 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 then when the drummers had worked out somewhat what their strategy was, and I started playing with it, I found that it, it was easier than I thought. I didn't have to stay out of the way. I, I thought, okay, I'm going to have to play a lot less. In fact, it, it didn't end up that way. But I did have to change my sound, and that's just not something that I can't really explain why, and it wasn't an idea I had. I just kind of responded to what I heard, and, and mm -hmm. all of the rehearsing we do is very helpful. I and mean, when you have weeks and weeks of playing the material to, to fine-tune your approach, then you can really get it hopefully get it right or get closer to something that works. So I gradually, um, I, don't, I don't know if the details matter, but I kind of gravitated towards one bass that had a somewhat thinner sound or less uh, bottom-heavy sound than, right. than my other bass I usually play, and, and kind of that worked more. And I also changed the amping and, the, and the, the sound of the bass somewhat in a subtle way. I'm not saying the audience knows that, but uh, in a way that works sonically for me with the drummers. So yes, I have... Yes, it's been a challenge, and yes, I have adjusted, mm. and yes, I am continuing to adjust. By the end of this tour, I might have adjusted a little more. Yeah, that'll be really an interesting thing to kind of, it's it's like it's a, a, a rolling, it's like you're surfing or something, you know. Yeah, you're exactly of, right, and and imagine the challenge for the sound mixer in the front of the house, and we have a very yes. good uh, yes. sound mixer, and it's really complex with the three drummers, and then five other guys. It's, it's a, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of notes coming at the audience, and we want it to be very clear. That's why we play theaters. We don't want to play. Uh, we've had the, the opportunity to play bigger places, but uh, it would just be impossible to to make sense of the music with the, the notes ringing around too much. Mm. We all appreciate that you take that approach, and well, <laughs> and they're looking at the acoustics to begin with. And frankly, it's kind of fun to be in a smaller place for multiple nights if you can do it. And, and yes. that, you know, economically, that's not the way managers think. But for for us, it's kind of nice and. And you get to, to settle in that second day. Your sound check isn't getting used to a new theater. You actually know how it's going to sound. Um, musically, it ends up better for us. So because, um, because you'll be doing a different set, is your sound check going to be... Um, I'm guessing you had a long sound check yesterday because it was sort of the first show. Um, and and uh, we're, we're so rehearsed that we kind of... Uh, it's just a run through of some little things we're going to do. If we're, if we're if Robert has unveiled a piece that we haven't rehearsed in a few days, then yeah, we'll we'll certainly do that piece through because uh, we have a great amount of material now that we can bring to the the sets if we want. So, uh, uh, but most of it we're very familiar with. Uh, the soundcheck is a little, little bit getting used to it, and I don't think it's, it really the tour has 
yet to begin, but yes. I don't think the length of the sound check really is going to depend on the place. It's just, it can be a pleasant sound check if it sounds good from the beginning, and it can be quite unpleasant if it's problematic from the beginning, and quite often at the end it still sounds problematic and ringing and not good, and you just hope that when the audience is in there, they'll absorb some right. of the sound that's ringing that's giving you problems. But they'll, they'll become the buffer. Yes. That happens a lot, and, and thank you, audience, for being there. It wouldn't be the same without that. <laughs> Wear as many fluffy items of clothing oh, yes. as possible. <laughs> yes, bring foam rubber. Is, um, is the Heroes EP out, the live in Europe? I thought it was supposed to be out um, this month. I think it's out. I'm not an expert at that end of things. I, don't, okay. I barely follow what we put out and, and why. I know that there's an EP called Heroes with the Peace Heroes, the David Bowie piece, and, and I think... Well, we did it last night. I don't know if we'll do it on every site. We did it last year on our on our tour of Europe, especially in Berlin. It was pretty pretty timely and pretty special and surprised the audience. Yeah. That that piece has a very distinctive guitar part that Robert Fripp played on the original. Yes. So it's pretty it's appropriate for us to play it and it's a very interesting counterpart to all the complexity of the King Crimson music. Uh that there's this simple David Bowie piece uh, as an encore. It's it's quite special. Mm. Well, um it, and I think that the Berlin recording is what that EP is. Yeah, being an EP, I think it's got yeah. more than that one piece. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's got, got a few others, but it's not a full... Uh, it's not a full-length. ...album. Yeah. What was um, the last thing that you were immersed immersed in prior to this tour in rehearsals? Um, uh, golly, you mean I have to think back a couple weeks? <laughs> Let's see, the first... So I had May off, which was wonderful and a little bit unusual for me because I tend to be on the road all the time. And before that, I toured with um, a jazz band with my brother called the Levin Brothers. My brother Pete Levin is a keyboard player, and we toured South America. Mm-hmm. And uh, before that, I toured with Stickmen, uh, a, oh, a progressive rock uh, trio, with myself and Pat Mastelotto, the one of the drummers of King Crimson, and um, Marcus Reuter, a touch guitar player from Germany. And we toured in the west coast of the U.S. And before that, we that same band went on a prog rock cruise called Cruise to the Edge, and then we went to Japan. Uh, so that's pretty much that's a synopsis of what I've done this year so far. Oh, nice. Um, and then is it tough for you switching gears from band to band and instrument to instrument, like, you know, whatever uh, your role was in the the last time? Well, and you, you Another know. good question. It's, it's uh, instrument to instrument, not so much. Band to band... Not at all, except when it's jazz. To switch to jazz from rock, for me, is a big switch. The feel is very different, and it takes me a while, so I need to... In fact, this happened when I went to Levin Brothers after Stickman. I need to slide in 10 days of me just playing the bass, the upright bass, uh, and the cello, which is what I play in that band. Uh, Just playing by myself and just getting the feel into my fingers. It's hard to describe Hmm. why it's so different, but uh, it is different. And, And if I don't do that, those first couple of shows are gruesome for me, and I just I just don't have the feel that I want to have for jazz. Mm. But to switch back to rock is, uh, frankly, pretty easy. Very interesting. Um, speaking of jazz, I know that you, you sort of exclaimed when I said you have to think back. How did you end up playing with Buddy Rich? Oh, I don't remember the, the, who gave me the call. That's, this is the way it is, being a freelance musician, same as anybody who's freelance in any field. You, you get a call. You don't mm-hmm. know. You don't have it. Uh, I never had an agent, or I don't think many anyone has an agent. Uh, you just get the call from somebody. So, uh, Buddy had come to New York with his big band, and for some reason, the bass player had 
left and they needed somebody and someone knew me. I think it was the, I'm remembering who it was now, but uh, I don't know how relevant it is, the, the kind of backstage manager was one of the sax players, uh, Pat LaBarber, who was an old friend of mine, and he probably recommended me. Mm. At that time, I lived in New York, and uh, I got to play a week with the big band in, in a club and then uh, make a recording, and then I uh, got to play a few more nights in Buddy. But at that time, Buddy had a, a jazz club of his own and played a show with a quintet there, which was pretty special. What do you remember most about Buddy Rich himself? Oh, gee, we don't have time for that. That's a two-hour. <laughs> for anyone who's played with Buddy, that's a two-hour. <laughs> even in my one week. He did, he did, he, for those who don't know, he's very uh, notorious among jazz musicians as, first of all, an awesomely great player. Yes. And kind of a... a a tyrannical band leader, <laughs> yes. and uh, and had a a, uh, a mercurial temper, and was very famous for firing guys, especially on the bus and on the band bus. I didn't get to experience the band bus, but the, there are tapes of everybody ranting and firing guys on the on the bus. So so one enters that situation with a little bit of trepidation, wondering if you're going to get fired. And indeed, he did. We uh, we did, as I said, a few nights in a club, and then we had two days booked in the studio to, 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 to record the album. And uh, after about an hour into the first session, he fired the whole band. And <laughs> <laughs> he did. He didn't like the way we, we were playing. It was a big band. I didn't take it personally. but uh, And, and gee, I, I walked around to the other guys, scratching my head, thinking, I know, I've, I've done a lot of studio work. And I've never seen this happen. And they said, oh, don't worry. The manager will call us tomorrow morning, rehire us, and we'll do the whole album in one day. And that is exactly what happened. Oh, that's and the very next day funny. we did the whole album with that kind of old-school jazz uh, pressure of, okay, now you've been fired, you've been rehired, and now we have to do it in one day. We better just play better, and that's, that's the app. That gives you a sense of the atmosphere that Buddy liked to have in the band. Mm -hmm. I love that you got that badge of honor. You got to get fired by Buddy Rich, though. <laughs> Thank you. Can I, if you have time, let me tell you one more story. When we were playing in the, I'll try and say it quickly, we were playing in the jazz club, and uh, Buddy did a lot of talking between shows and... and Sorry, between songs, and uh, but quite a ways into the show, he, he told the audience, he said, something is, is going to happen. Mel Torme, uh, the, the famed mm. uh, jazz singer, is playing yes. in town, and after Mel's show, this is Buddy talking now, after Mel's show, he's going to come and sit down uh, and, and see our show, and we're going to seat him right in the front. There's a little table in the front, and, and Buddy tells the audience that, that I'm, I'm going to do an elaborate introduction of him about how great he is, and I'm going to go on and on. And then when he stands up, we're going to put a spotlight on him, and I want no one in the audience to make a sound. No, no applause, no nothing. And uh, that's exactly what happened. Mel did that, and he and long introduction, and the spotlight went on him. And he stood up and turned around with a big smile and the spotlight, and no one made a sound. And it was really very, very funny. It was wonderful. <laughs> oh God, Again, that's, that's like... that old, that old uh, kind of hardline jazz humor and uh, kind of busting each other's chops. Oh, really. yeah, classic, like absolute yeah. classic. I've heard yeah, about that so, for years. Yeah, I, so I, I felt honored to be there for that particular night. Yeah, for sure. Do you have a story about having the opportunity to work on Bowie's The Next Day record? No stories. The thing that struck me, uh, first of all, I didn't play on the whole Record. I was called in because Gail Ann Dorsey, a wonderful bass player who, who generally plays with David, was busy on the road. Mm -hmm. uh, so I got called in for a week. I would have loved to play the whole album, but I, I was just thrilled to be part of it. I had played with him before. Uh, the thing that struck me is he came in 
each day and 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 played this new material I hadn't heard. It was also really really good material. And he he uh, I think of him as a great artist and of course a great performer, a great songwriter. But I didn't think of him as as a, a super musician. But really he he the way he presented the piece mm. and got it going and played the piano and sang it completely uh, the way it sounds on the album. It was just a done deal. Uh, he was so so professional. He's such a good musician that that actually took me by surprise. I already knew he was a good guy and a nice guy to be with and a fantastic performer, of course. Mm. And I was, I was I didn't know um, the way it works when you play on tracks like that. You don't really know if they're going to end up being on the record or not. So I was very happy that some of them made it onto the record because uh, I think they spent the whole year doing doing those same tracks and whether my bass parts had made it to the end you never one never knows but they did and and uh it was as notoriously kept a secret uh, they just quietly asked me not to tell anybody about the the session so i didn't you know i actually had forgotten i had done it and oh <laughs> about a, somewhat over a year later when it when they i think they emailed me at midnight the night that it came out the single and i, I thought wow they, they really did a good job of keeping this thing a secret mm. wow What's behind the uh, the delightful King Crimson Barbershop? Goodness, you've really done some some research. I'm trying to think. Uh, n- nobody's brought that up in a while. Uh, this is many going back to the '80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got it. We were we were in England recording, and and after everyone had left the studio, I got this idea about uh, what if we sang a barbershop quartet, knowing that we wouldn't, of course. But it was kind of a joke, and and I wrote the. Uh, a barbershop quartet about we're, we're the King Crimson band and we think that's grand and uh, to, to let the guys know what it sounded like I went in and, and quickly recorded each part just very quickly I mean I did it all in 15 minutes uh, not trying to get really right and, and the next day as soon as a joke I presented to the guys hey what do you think if we do this and we played it, we played it back and, and everybody chuckled and, and it went away and then a few years later, Robert put it out as a, and a bonus track on something. I'm not sure exactly what record. Yeah, I think it's the perfect pair. Okay, yeah, there I you go. So. I was very surprised it was not meant as that. I had not done the tracks well or anything like that. So, uh, uh, yeah, and it's been around, kicking around ever since. I know I, I redid it for myself as a kind of a, a, a digital audio book of something else I had done. And so it comes to the surface every few years, and maybe someday somebody, I can get someone to perform it. Actually, now we have four singers in the band. We never used to have four uh-huh. guys who could really sing in the band. Right. Mm-hmm. It, you're, it, you're, uh, you're called the double quartet, so there you go. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and there, are, there, there are some very good singers now in the band. And I'm not saying there weren't singers in the band. You know, Adrian Ballou was fantastic in the 80s. Oh, yeah. And I'm, I'm an okay background singer, but neither Bill nor Robert sang at all. Yeah, yeah. Also, maybe you can get the barbershop quartet thing going. Yeah, I'll, I'll bring that up today. Maybe tonight we'll do it. Probably not. <laughs> you never know. You never know. Can we expect a sequel to Beyond the Bass Club? Wow. Again, I'm impressed by how much homework you've done. Um, I wouldn't hold one's breath. Okay. <laughs> I wouldn't hold my breath for that. Uh, uh, because I have a lot of projects in different uh, stages that I'm working on, and, and a follow-up book to that one is not one of them. Okay. So, so maybe okay. someday I, I wouldn't say no, but the, there's a lot I try to accomplish in the time I'm not on the road, and uh, a lot of it's music, but some of it's photography, and, and I'm, I'm trying to put it for 
two years now, I've been trying to put together an exhibition of my photos from the 80s and 90s back when mm. we had this thing called film. <laughs> uh, now, I enjoy my digital photography a great deal now. Mm. Uh, but film was nice, and I have a, a really a lot of, a wealth of pictures of Peter Gabriel and King Crimson that, that deserve to be seen somewhere. Oh, yeah. And, and an exhibition is the right right sense for that. But it takes a bit of, quite a bit of time and, and really a different direction in my brain than, than uh, working on the music that I'm, I'm usually quite busy with either writing or practicing music. Right. So yes. I don't know what will come, but but uh, when hold my breath. And, and in a similar way, I did a King Crimson, a, a photo book of King Crimson in the 80s, Volume 1, and I never uh, <laughs> completed King Crimson in the 90s, Volume 2, let alone in the in the got, this century. You've you got a couple decades to... Uh... Yeah, I got work to, to do. To I got work, work on. to do. Next time I get home. Yeah. So, so, um, so you're on tour, the Radical Action 2017, and uh, do you have a preference to playing live or doing studio work? Yes, I prefer playing live by quite oh, a bit. Good. I've done a great deal of studio work in my life, and I enjoyed it. But uh, I love uh, the experience, the same as as audience goers. I mean, there's something magical that happens in a good concert. That we can't, exp- I can't explain too well in words, but it's very special. And those of us who, who do it for a living, it's really no different for us on stage than it is for the audience. It's like at the end of the show, it's like, wow, something really special happened tonight. I don't know why, but it was really special and really great. And and I wouldn't give that up for anything. Mm. So that's what I most love doing. And I've been very lucky in my career to go all over the world and do a whole whole lot of concerts in. In places, it's especially noticeable when you play for uh, an audience that doesn't even speak the same language. I've done a lot of that with Peter Gabriel. We've toured in in places I don't normally go and and, and connect uh, people with music who don't speak the same language is pretty special. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can only imagine it. That certainly would be. Do you, um, if I were to ask you who comes to mind as your best fit as a drummer, like to comprise your perfect rhythm section. Would you have an answer? Uh, no, I would evade that <laughs> that question because uh, uh, I've been really lucky and played with a, a lot of really great drummers. Uh, I grew up, musically grew up with Steve Gadd, one of, of the greatest drummers, and he kind of kind of tutored me on how to play jazz and things like that. Mm. Uh, and then I went on to play with Bill Bruford and, and Gavin Harrison, Pat Mastelotto, Buddy Rich. I, I won't really list them all, but uh, yes. I don't have a favorite. Um, okay. And like with any music I listen to or any bass player, it's the same with drummers. It, the guys who are great, the guys and, and women who are great, are just great. And, and it's not a sport. It's not a thing where somebody wins and there's a number one and a number two. Uh, so I thoroughly enjoy uh, the situation where I'm getting to play with somebody great. And, mm-hmm. and, and I also uh, am constantly being challenged as a player when I'm with these people because uh, their ability just reminds me that I have a ways to go as a player and I better practice and I better just in- intensify and get better at what I'm doing. And that's that's a situation I'm comfortable with. I like being challenged and I like uh, the opportunity to play with great musicians. Do you really think you have a ways to go as well, a player? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I don't think I'm bad. I'm not saying I'm a bad player. Right. No, but, no, no. Uh, I hear that. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, no, it's great to push yourself. I would just say that from out here, from the listener's perspective, it's like your approach to bass and sound is so unique, and you've redefined the function of the instrument. 
And I, th- I, th- I really think there's a lot of people out there co- in complete awe of you. Just well, you're very kind. Thank you. Go on and on and on. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's fine. I don't mind that at all. But uh, uh, like I said, what we see from our end of it, what we hear, the drummers and the bass players, are every little slam and every little imperfection, hmm. or maybe the feel wasn't as good as it could be. And we're, we, the drummers and I, are, are very happy to be constantly working on getting that better. Oh, I appreciate you bringing in, in the sensory also. That's uh, yeah. That paints a different picture. Um, yeah. What's the best way for listeners to find out about your appearances? VGM Live, I think, is the, the King Crimson website. You think I would know it. I know. Here, go to my website, which is Tony11.com. That has the, Perfect. the schedule. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, Tony, thank you very much for taking the time, and have a great tour. Thank you for the inspiration, and uh, have fun. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure, and I I can't wait to bring the King Crimson music to New Jersey. Yes, just a couple of weeks. Okay. Thanks. Thank you. Be well. Take care. Appreciate it. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Bye. And that concludes another podcast episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. More on the way. Thanks to Liz Berg for handling the in-house podcast duties here at WFMU. I am Diane Kamikaze. Check my Twitter and my Instagram. Handle is one word, Diane Kamikaze. Kamikaze ends with an E. On Facebook, you can find me as Diane Kamikaze, Farris, rocker for life and making a difference. Yes, my Facebook page has 10 words in it. My regular show is on Thursdays from noon to 3 p.m., for an expanded version with lots and lots of music, wisecracks, and fun stuff. The full link to my uh, index of shows and podcasts is can be found on wfmu.org slash playlists slash DK. Those are, that's a capital D and a capital K. I'm going to be working on encore presentations, and I've got years of old interviews and podcasts. So if there's something that you'd like to see reposted that you missed, please get in touch. Send me email, diane at wfmu.org. And be sure to subscribe to the show. And if you like it, please rate it and review it. Wow. WFMU. Peer pressure. Thank you. See you next time. 